root canals. Excuse me. Sir. Got a hair must, out of place. I must apologize, by the way, that I am giving your staff extra work because I am now starting to get letters addressed to me at San Clemente. <laughs> You're much better off if you just burn some and then you don't have to answer them. <laughs> they are so. And then you can say, well, I never got it. Yes. Everybody else blames the post office department. You can yes. blame them for yes. burning it or whatever they did. We were ready. <laughs> Four, three, two. At that moment, in the middle of uh, June, and early July 1970, how bad was the situation around the country? in terms of disorder? Well, by that time, just to uh, give you the, a sense of the magnitude, uh, in June of 1970, uh, it was a year of turbulence in American society. Uh, we had just been through the Cambodian experience, as you recall. Uh, the Kent State tragedy had occurred. Uh, the effect on college campuses and university campuses was enormous. We had a situation where 35,000 policemen had been victims of assaults, and a number of them had been killed. Then the extremist groups like the Weathermen and the racial groups like the Black Panthers, all violence prone, began to upgrade uh, their activities, and that but created a revolutionary atmosphere. How many of each of those were there, though? How many weathermen were there, and how many Black Panthers? Very few. Very few, and they could cause a lot of trouble. That, of course, was Richard Nixon, who presided over a time of massive upheaval in American society, where racial tensions were strained and headlines were constantly filled with violence and unrest. You know how they say that history repeats itself? Well, my dad had a front row seat to this particular moment in American history, and it all feels so much like today. He ran and police shot at him. According to the police accounts, he ran by himself. All over the country, people were erecting these community police alert patrols. The black community is military and occupied by white police. We should not just lie while we're shot up. The clarion call of American fascism is on its way, and the police state is rapidly upon us. I'm bringing you some of the most compelling tapes from my dad's archive of over 10,000 interviews. In this episode, we'll hear from the former leader of the Black Panthers, as well as their advocates and their critics. There were 10 cases in which Black Panthers were definitely killed by the police. I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. Episode 2, Panthers and Police. What you're saying is that security or law and order are not dirty words as long as they are in the control of the community. After Dad's success with the next president 1968, he was determined to create a talk show, as he said, not confined to showbiz. Nice to see you all. Great to have you with us. We've got... The newly syndicated David Frost show debuted in July of 1969. Often, he set out to talk about the most important issues of the day. Remember, this was the year after Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, and the country was in search of a way forward. In one of the earliest episodes, Dad brought on the recently widowed Coretta Scott King and asked her about the time leading up to her husband's death. The last thing that he gave me was some artificial flowers. This was 
in March, a few weeks before his assassination, yes. and he was getting ready to go out of town. He'd never given me artificial flowers before. And when he called me and said, did you get your flowers? And I said, I said, all oh, the flowers came. They're beautiful and they're artificial. And he said, oh yes, I wanted to give you something that you could keep. It was so unusual because he always gave me fresh flowers. And after his death, you know, the story, all of this came back to me. Do you, did he have a continual premonition of the danger he was in? Or do you think he was, had a special sense a few weeks before that something might be about to happen? As time went on, there was an increasing awareness that something could happen. But I think during the last year, the way he went about his work, the feeling of urgency that he had, he worked harder than I've ever seen him work, as if this was the last job he was going to do. And you know he said that it was America's last opportunity to prove that nonviolence could work. On April 4th, 1968, Coretta Scott King received the phone call that her husband had been shot at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. The person on the other end of the line was Dr. King's 26-year-old protege, Jesse Jackson, who'd witnessed the assassination with his own eyes. One year later, Jackson appeared on The David Frost Show, where he addressed the growing expectations to continue King's legacy and how his approach would be different. Now will you welcome the man who has been described quite often in the past few months as the heir apparent to uh, the mantle of the late Martin Luther King Jr. Will you welcome, please, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. A sign of the times, Jackson walks on wearing a green villa vest, matching pants and black boots. Welcome. Very good to have you with us. Uh, the current uh, issue of Playboy quotes again that uh, you sound a little like the late Reverend Martin Luther King and a little like a Black Panther. Which part of that description do you warm to the most? Or both equally? Well, it's a very difficult kind of question. I think that... Um... First, I'm always a bit embarrassed about such a headline. One never really speaks of replacing Dr. King. I would think that the, the writer in the Dr. King Panther kind of uh, expression was attempting to speak of one as super militant and the other, I guess, is not so militant. And I'm of the Panther generation, and yet I appreciate the philosophical position of Dr. King and where he brought us from. When he started, the alternative was either apathy and fear are some kind of nonviolent movement. Now the alternatives within the black community is between some form of creative militant uh, nonviolence and violence. So both of these In the early 60s, Malcolm X had put forth the philosophy of militant violence. Dr. King espoused nonviolence. Their opposition to each other's tactics has long been a heated subject of debate. But by 1969, with both men dead, the Black Panthers had taken up the mantle of Malcolm X. Reverend Jackson had become one of the men leading King's movement. But though he was never a Panther, Jackson sought to find common ground between the two approaches. I certainly can appreciate uh, the Panthers declaring outright that the black community is militarily occupied by white police 
and that we should uh, not just lie while we're shot up and shot down and destroyed. We should control the police force in our community. They have perhaps the most creative program in America, the breakfast feeding program, uh, which shows the contradiction of, of America having more food than it can use, and yet 40 million people are starving, 28 million of which are white. So I, I'm proud of that aspect of the Panthers program. And then on the other hand... You're Dad sits, as he often does, almost sideways on his orange armchair, leaning in to listen. As Jackson loosens up, Dad starts asking about his personal experiences with racism. What would you say is the most chilling or frightening experience that's happened to you in your life, probably? The one most memorable, perhaps as a child? Well, perhaps the most um, frightening experience is the point at which I became sensitive to uh, the black-white conflict and the absolute dominance and military power of whites and the instilled fear that blacks had developed as a part of being what a slave the, culture. What was the moment when that happened? Well, I was about five years of age and went down the street to a store. And we used to play with this fellow who was a white fellow who owned the local store. His name was Jack. And uh, all of us used to run in and out and buy our candy and our Mary Jane and our cookies. So this particular day, I went into the store and I was in a big hurry. So I whistled. I said, Jack, I said, I got to have my candy. When I whistled, he wheeled around and threw a 45 in my face and cocked a gun and cursed and told me to never whistle at him again. That was not my place. And even at five years of age, the store was full of black people, but nobody acted as if they heard or saw Jack. And the first thing went into my mind was, I can't tell my parents, basically, because if I tell them, they probably will be killed too. Which means that psychologically, even at five years of age, a certain realization of the black fear and intimidation in the face of white military suppression set a certain indelible imprint upon my mind that it was only when I began to get closer with Dr. King personally and philosophically that I began to deal with as a very personal problem that at one level or another all black people in America face. You just don't say certain things in the South and live. You just don't say certain things and get a chance to work. You just don't do certain things and live to be 21. The very basic reality of black people in America living on that kind of tyranny where fear is instilled very early, we live much of our lives escaping that fear. So you would ask one in the South, say, why don't you drink water downtown? Say, because I'm not thirsty. Say, why don't you eat downtown? Say, well, I ate before I left home. Why don't you use the movie? I'm not interested. Which are lies that come in the face of the fear, and that fear usually starts at a very early age, and you become so comfortable in the face of it until you walk by the water fountains and you aren't thirsty, and you walk by the food and you really don't get hungry, because you close off that portion of your mind. And if there's anything... Just a few years earlier, Reverend Jackson had left the South for Chicago, where he began seminary school. While studying, he saw Martin Luther King Jr. on television, marching in Selma. Jackson immediately knew he had to be there. He drove to Alabama, met Dr. King, and soon enough, found a job working with him, eventually becoming one of his closest advisors. After King was murdered, Jackson was entrusted with keeping the movement going. But as King himself had predicted, over time, the tactics would change. At one time, we talked about our capacity to endure. Now we're talking about our capacity to resist. When I grew up in the South, we used to talk about how long we could work and how hard we could work without giving out. Now we talk about uh, 
getting independent. For a long time, we spoke of the movement in purely moral and social terms. We thought that where we lived was a ghetto. But the fact is, what is known as the ghetto is really a colony that is built upon an economic prerogative rather than a social one. We represent the marginal profit of every major business in the nation. Economically, we have a position of power once it's collected that is greater relative to the American economy than China, Russia, or the European common market. So blacks really are seen as economic entities rather than moral agents, and we're seen as profits or losses, assets or liabilities. When we're unemployed, we're called lazy. When the whites are unemployed, it's called a depression, which is the psycholinguistics <laughs> of racism. Now, we are the cheap labor base. Uh, we are called lazy often, but we know better. I mean, we make cotton king, and, and we hold tobacco row, and hew out the sides and mountains, and uh, we've wanted to work so bad that we've shined other people's shoes and clean other people's houses when our own was unkept. So we know that saying that we are lazy is just a rich man's scapegoat for not wanting dealing with the fact that a basic redistribution of wealth is necessary if peace is to come in the nation. The David Frost Show, which aired between 1969 and 1972, was a departure from the traditional talk show format. Dab was not afraid of inviting controversial guests, and unlike other talk shows, he didn't compete for the spotlight. He was adamant that his guests be the show's focus, often giving them unprecedented amounts of time to talk. And the talk show format in those days was very much that you had someone on for a maximum of eight minutes, we decided that we wanted to do longer interviews. I would say maybe we'll talk to one person for as long as 20 minutes. And I could feel the Westinghouse people going, what do we let ourselves in for here? 20 minutes? I must be crazy. I mean, you don't. But that crazy idea worked. And that long format gave a platform to people whose ideas were rarely given space in the rest of the media. One of those people was the young co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Huey P. Newton. Well, we hear a great deal about the Black Panthers. Let's hear from them now. Will you welcome the Supreme Commander of the Black Panther Party, Mr. Huey Newton. Come, come and sit down. Welcome. Come and sit down. Huey Newton came on stage wearing a black leather jacket over a black mock turtleneck with black pants and black loafers. He looks young, and he was just 29. May I take my coat off? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Swing the mic over so that if we talk while we're standing, it is warm, isn't it? Let me. I said we hear a lot about the Black Panthers, and not a great deal from the Black Panthers. Now, there's a great many people who are afraid of the Black Panthers, the image that they have of them from the press. Uh, what do you think is the greatest public misconception about the Black Panthers? In what ways have the public got the Black Panthers wrong? I think that uh, much of the difficulty that people are having today is based upon a breakdown in communication. Communication is a very difficult thing, especially today when it's so fast with the uh, mass media and how uh, many people making interpretations that uh, we're bound to misunderstand each other. So uh, first, it's just real uh, current information that's needed. It's, of course, the party's job to uh, make that clear. 
It was a rare opportunity for Newton to have his ideas heard on such a large mainstream platform. And Dab was more than willing to give him the space to veer into history and philosophy. On one of those tangents, Newton declared that maybe those racial tensions weren't just a result of bad messaging. In his view, white people have always feared a truly free black population. After the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, after the uh, Civil War, blacks, of course, participated in the war fighting uh, for our freedom. Shortly after the uh, war, there's personal letters that Lincoln wrote saying that the first thing to do is to confiscate all the weapons from uh, those uh, blacks because they might fight for their real freedom uh, after this, you see. Right. They might go into guerrilla warfare. So uh, they were disturbed because uh, while many uh, liberal people, progressive-minded people wanted to change, they were afraid of this other group. So uh, people uh, who are afraid of change, people who want to support the status quo, would necessarily be somewhat upset by the new revolutionary thing. But there is no plan by the Black Panther Party, as some people fear, for instance, to institute uh, or start violence against the white community. Are you in favor of violence? Are you in favor of instituting violence? Uh, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm in favor of non-violence. We have to understand the difference between the violence of the aggressor and, and the uh, self-defense of the victim. If you ask me if I thought a man should defend himself, if he's being brutalized, and I would have to say yes. If you ask me would I institute uh, brutality, I would say no, because I think that uh, first, that one of our general policies that we're for world disarmament, we we would like to see the end of all wars. Uh, until that time, we have to be very realistic and see that it's a very violent world, and the United States is one of the primary aggressors in this violence, and we stand against this. We're for peace. Newton formed the Black Panthers in 1966. The movement was partly in response to the unrest following the death of Matthew Johnson, an unarmed black teenager who'd been shot in the back by a San Francisco police officer. There are, of course, a lot of gray areas to the case. Johnson had started to run after a routine traffic stop, and it was later discovered that while he'd been in a stolen car, the police officer wasn't aware of that when he shot him. But either way, the Panthers united behind the idea that the escalation was inhumane that an unarmed boy shouldn't die in that circumstance. Uh, in the case of 66, if you remember, people across the country, especially the black community, the uh, Mexican-American community, were very concerned about uh, police brutality and also the fact that most of the police in most of these uh, ethnic communities did not live in the community and they were not uh, ethnic group members. So Newton studied California's gun laws and began organizing groups of armed black men to follow police to monitor their behavior and prevent brutality. The Panthers called it security. The police called it intimidation. Uh, all over the country, people were uh, erecting these community police alert patrols. The Black Panther Party then just took it to a little higher level by saying that, uh, well, if we are not allowed to be our own security, then we'll exercise our constitutional right to uh, defend ourselves and to bear arms, and we'll patrol our community until the community can then get its own police force. And I say its own police force, I mean a civilian board to hire and fire people in that community to uh, control that particular institution. But, but Newton's ambitions for the Panthers soon grew beyond armed self-defense. He wanted to build a community institution. Which the party was created to be the advocate of the people and really to uh, attempt to form what we never had before, and that's a community. One thing that black people 
in this country have not had since our arrival here and change is the uh, community. And a community is a comprehensive collection of institutions that's supposed to serve the people around it. So we have clothing programs, health programs, it's used as an organizing tool in the community for survival. Also, it's providing organized structures through which the people can vent desires and pursue their goals. Yes. Ending police brutality was just one part of a 10-point program the Panthers proposed. Other points included demands for better housing, jobs and education for African Americans. But it was always the party's relationship with police and the bursts of violence that seemed to capture the public's attention. But if you look at our platform, you see that that's not until seven on our list. And that's intentional because we knew that the police are just workers also. What we really were trying to change is a whole institutional that's, that's thing. That's an interesting point. You just said the policemen are workers also. Yeah. Do you think all policemen are pigs? Uh, I very seldomly use the word pig for many reasons. It's a word that the Black Panther Party coined. It drew a fine line between the uh, aggressor and the victim. Really, it's sort of Nietzsche's plan. When you see that Nietzsche, when he analyzes language, he sees that the noble class, they create the language for their own uh, perpetuation and their benefit. So it's a matter of semantics. To put a label on it is a power. I must say that was a sensational and, and indeed evolved answer. If anyone had said we were going to get into Nietzsche in the middle of an answer about that. that I'm was, sorry. No, no, I don't mind a bit. Not that I uh, agree with Nietzsche, but everyone makes a contribution and we always have to respect that. But now that it's served its purpose, that semantics, you presumably wouldn't say that all human beings of the group known as police are in fact pigs, as simple as that. Well, I never believe in absolutes, so I never use all, I never use absolutes because they're nonsense words to me. Uh, on the other hand, we would not call people pigs if they were in control of the institution of security, if they were under control by the community, you see? What you're saying is that security or law and order are not dirty words as long as they are in the control of the community. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, I think law and order has been made a very dirty word because of the connotation. But I think that people use law and order and then attach a certain meaning to it that uh, makes it somewhat dirty. In 1968, calls for law and order were central to many presidential campaigns, including those of Richard Nixon, George Wallace and Ronald Reagan, as we heard in episode one. The vast increase in the assaults on symbols of law and order of policemen. The most important thing in our country is maintaining law and order. These statements were seen as veiled threats at dissident groups like the Panthers, and soon the Panthers would begin to allege that law and order was neither legal nor orderly. They claimed the government was conspiring to assassinate members and dismantle the organization. Dad asked Newton about all of this. This allegation of whether there was a systematic campaign to assassinate members of the Black Panther Party. I think it will be uh, belittling and not giving our respect and consideration to black people generally and our history if we talk about just the uh, murder of black panthers. When we uh, analyze the contradiction between the black community and usually an all-white police force, we have to analyze it in historical context. I wouldn't charge that there were 30 <laughs> black panthers or 30 black community uh, members killed, but I would charge approximately 50 million 
that the white world was responsible for dating back to the 1400s. Around the world, in fact. uh, The whole world. They say there's this conservative figure, 50 million approximately Africans killed and murdered through either throwing them overboard because of disease on the ships, through uh, torture, and so forth. And this is why the party exists. So then it would be very wrong for us to scream and say that, well, 30 Black Panthers were murdered. I would talk about the murders done in the Civil Rights Movement. I would talk about the four little girls. I would talk about a general problem rather than attempt to isolate the party and say that, well, it's a war between the police and the Panthers. I introduced this discussion by saying that uh, we hear a lot about the Black Panthers. We don't hear from them very often. And I must say what we've heard from you is very different from a lot we've heard about you. Thank you for being here. Goodbye for now. Over three years, Dad filmed 750 episodes of The David Frost Show for Westinghouse, which was later bought by CBS. The master tapes had been stored in a depot in Philadelphia. When I regained control of that part of the archive in late 2015, we discovered that only 380 master tapes remained. My archive partner, the brilliant David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions, later discovered that 50 of the missing tapes did exist, and in the most unlikely place the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Nixon had a penchant for making recordings, I suppose. We can only guess the Nixon White House's motivation for which episodes they chose to record, but judging by the list of names, Eugene McCarthy, Jane Fonda, George McGovern, Jesse Jackson, a lot of them were people he was likely keeping tabs on rather than admiring. In fact, the Huey Newton interview we just heard would not exist if not for the Nixon Library copy, nor would the following tape, a debate between Newton's lawyer and a journalist. The debate centered around the same question Dad had posed to Huey Newton, whether the recent deaths of Black Panthers was part of a government attempt to destabilize the Black Power movement. And if so, how many Panthers had been killed for that reason? First of all, a debate, an attempt to get at some facts, because on December the 4th, 1969, Fred Hampton, chairman of the Black Panther Party, and Mark Clark, a party member, was shot and killed by plainclothes policemen in an apartment in Chicago, Illinois. The following day, Mr. Charles Gary, a very well-known attorney who's often represented Black Panthers in court, as Bobby Seale's attorney and Huey Newton's, said that Hampton and Clark were, quote, the 27th and the 28th Panthers murdered by the police. This figure was reported by the New York Times and 300 newspapers who take their news service, by the Washington Post and 200 newspapers who take their service. One way and another, the idea that a lot of Black Panthers had been shot, it seemed deliberately as part of some sort of plan by the police spread throughout America. Even there are two men on stage with Dad. One of them is Edward Epstein, a journalist who in an article for The New Yorker disputed the statistic. The other is Charles Gary, the attorney for the Panthers who popularized the claim. He's seated closest to Dad and sporting a silver-haired comb-over and fairly serious-looking grey suit. He starts off the debate like the pugnacious lawyer that he is. What was the reason, what was the evidence on which you originally stated 28 Black Panthers had been killed? I said that there were 28 or more or less, and I'm still saying the same thing in spite of the distortion that the writer for the New Yorker put out. 
we have a number of panthers who have disappeared, and we cannot find any traces of them. And we feel that they've either been eliminated, liquidated, or destroyed by the police or their agents. Yes, but you said here that uh, Mr. Hampton, Mr. Clark, were the 27th and the 28th. Those are the figures that we very quickly compiled from the telephone calls to different chapters throughout the country, and those were the figures that were handed to us. By whom? By Panthers themselves, by the Panther chapter. The other man on stage, the journalist Edward J. Epstein, has messy black hair and trendy black-rimmed glasses. He looks at Gary with a sense of bewilderment. I can appreciate Mr. Gary's wanting to call attention to uh, what he feared might happen to the Black Panther Party. I certainly think, as the spokesman and general counsel for the party, he had a right, if he had legitimate fears, that the Hampton and Clark might be a prelude to further um, acts against the Panthers of perhaps pulling a number up quickly and giving out the number. But what uh, bothered me most in my investigation was not what Mr. Gary said as the spokesman for the Black Panther Party, but the way that charge was repeated by the press, leaving off the fact that it was attributed to an interested party, Mr. Gary. They repeated it as plain fact. 28 Panthers were killed. Epstein's got a big manila folder in his lap as if he's ready to produce pages of evidence for his arguments. Well, I can just simply say that nine uh, names on the list were not killed by the police. Uh, why don't, if, if you disagree, that's, Mr. That's Gary... His, that's his opinion. Well, nine were not killed by the police. I say that all of them were killed by the police or their agents well, or the circumstances that created it. That's not what you, you say see, on your own list. You see... What, does he, what did Mr. Gary say on the list? Uh, at least one of the cases he attributes to a Seattle uh, grocer who shot a man robbing his store. It says so right on the list here. Maybe you could... Um, I'll find the case for you. Well, Epstein opens the manila folder and takes out what must be dozens of pages of unorganized documents. Gary, meanwhile, stares straight ahead with a menacing frown. He refuses to look at Epstein directly, often only talking to Dad, and even references Epstein in the third person at times, as if he's not even there. I don't agree with what he has said. I don't agree with his analysis. Uh, I don't agree with his approach. I mean, the point we're going to come to at the end of all this is obviously, is this the best way to serve the cause of, of your cause or any cause, you know, by these sort of facts when they come out? Let's just take this list of 19 that we've got all these letters about. I know, what, but... What happened? And I then know, if you want to add know, other names, know, you can do that. I know, but Mr. Frost, you are missing the very heart of what I'm here for and what I'm talking about. To me, it's irrelevant whether it's 28, 38, or 1. I've made the charge that the It's irrelevant, did you say, that it's 28 well, will or 1? Will this one bag quit interrupting me when I'm trying to state the position? But it doesn't seem irrelevant to me if, if you gave a complete false well, statement. It's not irrelevant because They've been going on like this now for 22 minutes, accusing each other of being liars, FBI agents, racists even. Why, why, why is it irrelevant whether you've said 28, 1? Because it's not important. The important part Isn't of it truth is... truth important? Oh. Isn't it? I didn't vouch for that list. You yes, you Dad's did. clearly very focused on getting the facts right and is doing his best to get Gary and Epstein to rationally address each other's points. On that latter part, I have to say, it's not going very well. Don't you feel you have any... I don't understand this. I, if you well, care I don't about, expect you to understand. If you don't... <laughs> 
if you care about your cause, why can you, why do you let this? It's not be... my cause. It's your cause too. It's Don't your, forget it. The cause of freedom. Don't is forget. Don't cause. forget. This is your battle too, not mine alone. Right. I'm, and don't just try to let me pass this on. This is your problem, this is his problem, and this is the problem of this audience, and also the viewing audience. But then they get to the story of Bobby Hutton, the first Black Panther to die at the hands of the police. He was 17 years old. Where did you get the garbage that Bobby Hutton was not well, murdered in cold blood? Did you ever talk to any of the black policemen who were there? Bobby Hutton was shot by the police. That's no. what I said in the article. I agreed with you on that no, point. No, you did not. Mr. Have, have you read the article, Mr. Gary? Yes, of course I've Mr. read your what article. What happened in that shootout, Mr. Epstein? Uh, the, well, Bobby Hutton was shot by the police after he came out. According to the accounts by Eldridge Cleaver, he was told to run, he ran, and police shot at him. According to the police accounts, he ran by himself. I said in either case, he was shot while running. You lean towards the fact that the police were right and they were being harassed and they'd gone through a 90-minute shootout and this was a result of it and that the Panthers were laying in siege for him. That's the account that you gave in your paper. In every one of those cases where you say that the uh, Panthers were armed and they were shot by the police, those were instigated by the police themselves, but you wouldn't understand that because you have a jaundiced point of view, you're representing the police point of view. You have no understanding of what the harassment of the black ghetto is on the part of the police. You don't understand that. You wouldn't understand that. I do understand no that. Eventually, after debating for over an hour, the two men make their closing statements. When I examined the charges made that were now, I'll say, allegedly based on Mr. Gary's list, when newspaper reporters, magazines, everyone claimed Mr. Gary was the source that 28 were dead rather than 28. There were 10 cases in which Black Panthers were definitely killed by the police. And this is a very serious question of 10 deaths in a year period or two year period. And I tried to examine the circumstances and tried to look at the Black Panther newspaper, at the police records, at all the different accounts and tried to see if I could pull together whether these incidents occurred, like did the Hampton Clark raid, whether it was a police raid aimed at the Panthers or whether it was one of the ghetto type incidents. And that unfortunately, maybe because the police were unsympathetic to the people or maybe because of uh, any other reason, the shooting took place, but it was not a coordinated pattern. That was the point of my examination. Mr. Gary, your two minutes. I've uh, made the statement to begin with that I believe that the number of Panthers that were killed, as to how many there were, whether there were two or 20 or 30 or 100, uh, as to those particular details, I consider irrelevant. Irrelevant in the sense that there is a concerted effort throughout the United States today, New Orleans, Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, and other parts of the country, where there are police through the instigation of the FBI and people in the Department of Justice say, we've got to destroy the Black Panther Party. I say that the clarion call of American fascism is on its way, and the police state is rapidly upon us. I'm in these courts daily where the atmosphere is of tension, where the police and the courts themselves cannot even relax. And we can't even find juries to be able to say that they have an impartial mind without any form of prejudgments. These are the areas in which I am concerned with. When the heads of my government, Agnew, Mitchell, Hoover, and others, come out and say that my client should be destroyed, 
my clients whom I have learned to respect and to have compassion and love for. And when they're out in the firing line daily trying to fight, the discrimination and the problems of the ghettos of America, they are being systematically, singly, collectively destroyed. Just weeks after this interview, activists would break into an FBI office in Pennsylvania and uncover documents that prove the existence of COINTELPRO, a government surveillance program whose partial aim was to disrupt and destroy any black power movements. The number of Black Panthers who died as a direct or indirect result of that program remains in dispute today. Because of the confusion, many whites think that eliminating blacks will be the solution to their problem. And many blacks in response think eliminating whites will be their solution. To end this episode, I want to return to Reverend Jesse Jackson. As I mentioned in the last episode, Dad was the son of a Methodist preacher. Many wouldn't know that he would kneel to say his prayers every night. And so Dad knew that despite all of the anger and frustrations of the times, Reverend Jackson might find inspiration in a higher authority, that he could still see a reason to be optimistic. One last question. I wonder what of all the texts in the Bible, what's the most moving or precious text to you in the Bible? Micah's sixth chapter, the sixth through the eighth verse, where this man was trying to find himself and was trying to find a genuine form of worship. And he, like most people, was uh, looking for God in his belongings rather than his being. He was trying to purchase God. And he started with all of his money and his material development that he was still woefully, spiritually weak and incomplete. He could live with everybody except himself. And so he came to the prophet and asked him, how can I get myself together? And all of a sudden, the prophet broke in and said, oh man, you know what's good. You do justice. And doing justice is a behavior. It's a way you treat and act. It's what you do, not just how you feel. Then he says, walk humbly before God. That is, walk very respectful upon an earth uh, that has soil in it that you didn't make, water that you didn't make, oxygen that you didn't make, and mountains and, and cattle and food and and other forms of livelihood that you didn't make. It begins to deal with things like doing justice where children are educated and where people can have a job on income and having an attitude where you don't automatically have to hate somebody because they have another race. And it deals with walking on an earth that you didn't create and therefore you should find no need to have to dominate because it was here when you got here and it would be here when you leave. That's a great selection from the rival. Coming up on the next episode of The Frost Tapes, we hear from women who changed the national conversation and set the stage for greater equality. Can't you see what is happening now on the American scene? Women in this country really realizing that they have a great deal of power that they haven't even taxed. It's funny, isn't it, that there aren't any women in the executive positions of this company. The moments of truth when you suddenly think, that's me too. People are starting to identify with us as human beings. Tell me, do you think there can ever be a woman president of the United States? Oh yes, yes, it's coming. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradine Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Itor. 
Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch, and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch, with help from Abu Zafar, Michelle Lands, and Josh Fisher. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Ears Productions and Morgan Lavoy of iHeartMedia. For this episode, special thanks also to Ryan Pettigrew and Pamela Eisenberg at the Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. 